Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 23. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of the hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the formal, form, former days declares the Lord of hosts. For, thou, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak to the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Brooks. I'm not sure that passage was long enough, but um, <laughs> thank you. We'll we'll bear we'll bear anyway. Um, I don't know if you've seen the uh, the movie. It's called Grand Canyon. It was made in 1991. 
starring Danny Glover. So you know you're already being relevant and edgy as a preacher when you're <laughs> referencing Danny Glover movies from 1991. But the, the, um, there's a famous scene in this movie. You can find it on, um, on the YouTubes. But there's, um, uh, there's this fancy pants lawyer in this expensive car, and he's in a traffic jam, and uh, he tries to avoid um, traffic. And so he, he cuts off on a side road, and he's kind of going through these neighborhoods that he doesn't really know. And you remember, this is, this is pre-cell phone, so pre-maps you know, on your phone. This is even pre-MapQuest, when you would print your directions and have them in the seat next to you. And so he, he gets lost, and he finds himself kind of turned around in kind of this uh, kind of a rougher uh, neighborhood. And it's dark, and of course, that's the moment where his car breaks down. And so he, his car breaks down, he's dark, and he's kind of he's parked on the side of the road, and there are all these people walking around and driving on these kind of what, what he seems like, you can just tell, kind of ominous streets. And so he gets out of his phone, and he goes over, and he makes a payphone call. And <laughs> this, this is so dated. And he makes this payphone call. You remember those? And he calls for a tow truck, and he goes back in his car, and he waits. And as he's waiting, there's this car of, of um, kind of f- uh, four young kind of, teenagers from the neighborhood that surround the car, essentially to carjack him. They come up to him, they start threatening him, they show him a, a gun in his, in their, uh, in the, in his belt and uh, they get him out of the car and, and right at the moment when they're about to, I guess, beat him up or take his stuff, that's when the tow truck shows up. And it's Danny Glover is the tow truck driver and he gets out and he starts hooking up the car and kind of the leader of this group uh, confronts Danny Glover. He's like, what are you doing? You're, you're, in a, you're kind of screwing this robbery up. And then Danny Glover gives this famous dialogue, and here's, and here's what he says. Quote, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And I think the reason why that little bit of dialogue is so famous is because it's such a, um, it's such a human thing to say, to be able to look around and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be around here. And all of us feel that. We all feel that in our own lives when we think about the wounds that we carry and the, the stories that we have and the baggage that we deal with. We just like, this is not the way life is supposed to be. The world's not supposed to be like this. And we feel it, like it deep in our bones. And, and, and the people that would have received this initial weird long vision from Zechariah 8, they would have felt that as well. They were trying to rebuild a life that had been decimated, and they're looking around without hope, and they're looking around discouraged and feeling like this is not the way it's supposed to be. And into that crisis, into that feeling, God gives them the book of Zechariah, which is weird, and it's confusing, and it's strange. But when you get to chapter 8, chapter 8 is so far the the... The, the highlight of the whole thing because you get this long but very beautiful panoramic view of where God has taken the world and where God has taken the world is to a place where it's supposed to be, a place that is marked by peace. In fact, that word peace is kind of sprinkled throughout this whole thing. If you look at verse 12, it shows up and it says, for there shall be a sowing of peace. Shows up again in verse 16. You see it down there in verse 19. Now, when you and I hear the word peace, it can kind of feel a little, a little flat to us where it's just like, ah, oh, I, I had a feeling of calm, peaceful. I felt peaceful. 
Or you, we think about peace between um, two enemies that have, have a ceasefire. There's a peace treaty between these two. And so it, to us, it, it, it's, it's not nearly, it doesn't hit us the way that it would have for the original hearers. Because biblically speaking, the word peace is incredibly rich and robust and, and loaded. And it's at the center of this vision. So what I want to do is, is try to answer three questions. What is peace? What is this vision of peace? What is it? What does it do? And then how do you get it? So what, even, what does it mean? Does it do anything? And if, then how do you get it into your own life? So first, um, what is it? Well, different theologians and thinkers have said that your, your, your life can basically be boiled down to four fundamental relationships. Everybody has four core relationships. Your relationship with God, how you relate to others, how you relate to the world that you find yourself in, the nature itself, and your relationship with yourself. And because every single one of us woke up in a world that has been damaged by humanity's rebellion against God, all four of those fundamental relationships are wrecked and damaged and vandalized. So every human being feels alienated from God. We feel the hostility and the conflict and the violence between each other. Nature itself feels out of whack and out of control. And uh, our relationships with ourselves. I mean, have you tried to even understand yourself you're just a, if you're anything like me, you're just this bottomless pit of contradictions and confusion and shame. And it's like, I don't, even, I don't even know how to make sense of this. So what this vision does is it shows you that behind the word peace is the healing of all four of these relationships. In fact, you might know that word peace in Hebrew is this great word shalom, Lisa Sharon Harper uh, recently wrote a book called The Very Good Gospel where she does kind of a deep dive treatment of this whole idea of shalom, of, of peace. And whole, her whole argument is that at its root, shalom has to do with the healing of relationships, the healing of these, what you might say, these four fundamental relationships. And so let me show you just this vision, this picture of one day, someday, God's going to heal this web of damaged relationships. Let, let me just kind of do a flyby over this passage. We're not going to look at all of this because we'd be here too long and you'd be hungry. So let's look at the first, just our relationship with God. Look at verse three. It says, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Or verse eight, I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God. And so you have restored intimacy with God. You have God dwelling with people. We are his people. He is our God. Restored intimacy. Second relationship with each other. Look at verse 10. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. He says, back then, the world you inhabited was marked by hostility between people. Neighbors were set against neighbor. But in this new world, no more. It'll be marked by peace. In fact, my, my favorite verse of this whole thing is in verse 5. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. 
mean, it's amazing. It's just this picture of what was once marked by hostility and violence is now children laughing, playing tag on Union Avenue and Cooper. And it's just it's this vision of, of vibrancy, of, of healed relationships. Third relationship healing, our relationship with nature. Look at verse 12. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their dew. It's this picture of the world working the way it's supposed to, this, of, of nature producing harvests and abundance. And, and in fact, look at verse 4. You even get more. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. You have this picture of long life, no more death, no more disease, people living full, vibrant lives where nature doesn't just swallow them. And then look at the last thing, your relationship with yourself. Verse 18, and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Fasts transformed into feasts. These things that were marked on the calendar of let's lament, let's mourn, let's starve ourselves, transformed into let's feast, let's celebrate joy, fullness within yourself. So, I know that was a lot, but that's the picture. That's the image of the world as it's supposed to be. And the vision is God's going to bring shalom. God's going to bring peace. God's going to make all of this happen. Now, you might hear that and you think, okay. That feels nice. That's a nice idea. That kind of feels a little bit um, like just wishful thinking, though, of like, okay, it's all going to work out in the end. So let's look on the bright side of life. Does this vision actually intersect with our real lives, or is this just pious spiritual optimism? What does this actually do? That's the next question. And to get at that, I want you to remember that the people in Zechariah's context had experienced tremendous suffering. Foreign, stronger empires had come in, devastated their city, destroyed their cultural institutions, murdered and brutalized countless men and women and children, deported thousands of people away from their homeland, Decades later, they were allowed to return, and here they are trying to rebuild life out of rubble. Their, their economy is destroyed. They they're, have grinding poverty. They are experiencing incredible suffering. And God gives them this vision so that they would endure, so that they would keep going. Look at verse 9. It says uh, two different times in this passage. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You see that again in verse 13. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. And again, he says, fear not, a second time down at the end of uh, verse 15. But you see this refrain. What is he doing? He's, he's encouraging them. He's saying, I want you to hold on. I want you to hang in there. I, want, I don't want you to withdraw in fear. I want you to keep giving yourself to doing good in the middle of the terrible even though life is terrible right now, right now is not the end of the story. So be strong and keep going. In fact, this is why in verse 16 and 17, he says, this is why I want you to keep speaking the truth. 
I want you to keep pursuing justice. I want you to love what God loves. I want you to hate what God hates. And so, and so here's what I want you to see. How you understand the future impacts how you live in the present. It's kind of common sense, but, but if you zoom out and you think, how I understand the history and the, the, the how's the universe going to end, that actually impacts how you live now. If you believe that when you die, it's just lights out, that there is no afterlife, it's just, it's just, that's just the end. And one day, someday, the sun's going to burn out, and human civilization is just going to be over, and the, the earth is going to freeze up, and that, that will just be in the end of humanity. And so in the end, no one will remember anything that you have done, and no one will remember anything that anyone else has done. And so, you can choose to give your life away in love for your neighbor, and you can pursue racial justice and economic justice, or you can choose to be a serial killer, and it doesn't really matter. There is no, it might feel like one matters more, but according to your understanding of the universe, it doesn't matter. How you live doesn't really matter. Now, if you believe in the end, God's going to return and he's going to restore everything that's broken in the world. And there will be a judgment day and therefore everybody's going to be held accountable. Nobody's going to be able to get away with anything. And therefore, everything that we do in this life matters. Everything from your career and how you choose to spend your days to how you relate to the barista at Otherlands. Everything matters. That's two very different visions of the world. And that produces two very different ways of living your life. Think about this. Howard Thurman was an um, African-American scholar, theologian, minister. And in 1947, pre-civil rights era, gave a lecture at Harvard. He was responding to criticisms that um, the, the spiritual songs, the spirituals, that the uh, black slaves sang, uh, the criticism was they're too otherworldly. You know, all these songs are always about heaven and thrones and crowns and the life to come. And the criticism was that if, when you believe in this life to come, when you believe in this stuff, it makes you submissive. It makes you docile. It makes you weak. And here's his response. Here's, here's what he says in this lecture. It's amazing. He says, quote, the facts have made it clear that this sung faith served to deepen the capacity of the slaves for endurance and their ability to absorb their suffering. And it taught a people how to ride high in life, how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. This enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Now, that's amazing, but here's what he's saying. He's saying that the slaves actually believed Zechariah 8. And rather than that making them weak, it actually gave them supernatural strength, the ability to, to endure the cruelty that, that is beyond our wildest imaginations. 
that they lived in a world that was un- so cruel, and, then, and yet, as, uh, as he puts it, uh, they were still able to affirm a terrible right to live. That's tapping into something most, most of us don't know how to tap into. You know, if you go downtown to the Civil Rights Museum, there's a, um, there's a quote on one of the walls by Richard Wright, who's a, a Mississippi author, grew up in, uh, in uh, Jim Crow era, Mississippi, actually lived in Memphis for a little bit. And uh, one of his quotes from one of his books uh, says this, our churches are where we dip our tired bodies in cool springs of hope, where we retain our wholeness and humanity despite the blows. I love that image, that what we're doing right now in church is we're, we're, we're dipping our bodies into hope once again. That's what he's saying. That's what, the point, that's, what, that's what he experienced in the church. So here's my point with all of this. If this hope from Zechariah 8, this vision of peace, if it carried our black brothers and our black sisters through the horrors of slavery, through the horrors of Jim Crow, if this vision carried our, our ancient Israelite brothers and sisters through grinding poverty and through the suffering that they endured, this has the resources to carry us through whatever suffering we're dealing with too, whatever it is, the, the crushing medical diagnosis, the, the loss that we've experienced, whatever life can throw at you. That, that's why this vision, this is not just Pollyanna, pie in the sky. Let's look on the bright side. This gives you the ability not to make suffering go away, but to face it and to endure through it. And even as our brothers and sisters from the past have showed us to, in some miraculous way to be able to sing through it. That's what this vision does. It gives you the ability to endure. So the million-dollar question is, okay, how in the world do you get that in here? How do you get the hope that the slaves had? Or how do you get the hope that our ancient Israelite brothers and sisters had? And to answer this last question, we've got to look at this little detail about the mountain in verse 3. It says, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city in the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. This is saying when God comes back, brings shalom, heals this web of broken relationships, that the city of Jerusalem is going to be called once again the faithful city and the mountain on which it was built on top of. It's going to be called the holy mountain. It's this It's this verdict, this blessing of calling it beautiful, holy once again. But here's the thing. Here's what you and I know on this side of things. That before that mountain could be called beautiful, before it could be called holy, it had to first be called horrific. Before God could deal and make right everything in the world, he had to deal with all of the wrongs in the world. And so what he did in the person of Jesus was he came, and on his la- the last week of his life, he went to Jerusalem. And he went up on that mountain. And he experienced the horrors of being crushed and crucified on the cross. And, and what, what is he experiencing on the cross? You know what he's experiencing? The undoing of shalom. Think about Jesus' own four relationships, his experience with God. His relationship with God is being ripped apart in front of him. He cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing cosmic alienation from God. And then think about his relationships with others on the cross. He is being 
beaten, spit upon, mocked, punched, pierced, stabbed, nailed. He's experiencing some of the worst brutality that, that humanity can manufacture. His relationship with nature. You know, on the cross it says that for three hours the world went dark. It's almost like nature itself was revolting against him in that moment. And then you think about his relationship with himself. He's sweating blood. He's, he's crying out in agony. In fact, he's, all four gospel accounts make the point to show you that he was crucified naked, strung up, completely exposed, nothing to hide behind. It's, this, it's the picture of just utter shame. People see you at your most exposed. Why is he experiencing the undoing of shalom? Why is he losing shalom in that moment? So that you can have it. His relationships, his core relationships are being destroyed so that your core relationships could be healed. The way that you get this is that you make this story your story. When you cling to Jesus by faith and you say, I need you to bear the penalty of all of the ways that I've messed up the world. When you cling to Jesus by faith, this story becomes your story. This hope becomes your hope. In fact, you start to tap into this thing that the Bible calls a living hope because Jesus three days later walked out of the grave and when he walked out of the grave fully alive, fully restored, fully vindicated by God, the Bible in many ways says what that was was really just a sneak preview of what he's going to do with the whole world. And here's this, here's this last verse that I'll, I'll read you from 1 Peter 1. It says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, final thought. I'll end, I'll end with this. I don't know all of your stories. I know some of your stories, and some of you know my story. But I know enough to know that every, everybody in this room, myself included, are carrying around very heavy burdens. If it's uh, addiction or depression or anxiety or debt or just chronic health concerns, or strained marriage, hard parenting, loss, whatever it is. All of us have those things. I want to invite you to lean into this vision, to fixate your imagination on, on the world to come as God's going to heal it, and, and to fixate on it until it... And, and to allow it to strengthen you, to keep going, to keep enduring, to hang on to your faith. There's an old uh, African-American spiritual called hold on. And that's the idea, that when you know that this is coming, you can hold on. When you know that one day, someday, Midtown and our city and the world will be made right in all these relationships will be overflowing with peace once again, that's what gives you the ability to hang on. So my, my plea for you, my encouragement for you, my invitation for you is to fixate on that and to hold on in love and in faith and in peace. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that you would give us a vision of this life to come, that this would not just be 
naive optimism. This wouldn't just be spiritual pie in the sky, mumbo jumbo, but this, this would give us the resources to be able to handle anything that life throws at us, anything. Help us to tap into this because we can't. We can't manufacture hope. We can't manufacture faith. We need you to give it to us. So would you be generous? Would you be gracious to drill this vision of peace deeper into our own hearts and into our bones? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.